following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you now to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1 as we continue this new series. We're reminded that Paul is writing this letter to a people that knew him and loved him, and yet a a people who had become tainted in their view of him and in their understanding of the gospel likely undermined uh, those enemies of Paul, who are undermining both his apostolic authority and an understanding of the biblical gospel. And in our text, Paul is responding to the questions of skeptics and those challenging his ministry, and here he's vindicating his calling and establishing the very nature of the gospel, which he received by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And I found that as Paul is answering his critics, he provides us a very helpful outline for our use in a day of many counterfeits for us to clarify and confirm the gospel of God's grace. Please follow as I read, beginning in chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? For am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia." And returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing 
and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We live in a world that requires confirmation. Little League Baseball required my son and his teammates to offer up documents validating their age and their residency in order to play summer tournament ball to eliminate fraud of bringing in players from outside our district. One of the pressing issues in America today is our southern porous border, across which millions of illegal and undocumented workers pour into our American soil, seeking the prosperity of the U.S. economy. And our courts are overwhelmed with many, many cases seeking to confirm which adults and children have legitimate claims to residency versus those that must be sent back to their home countries. This past week, I had a walk-in, a person walk-in from off the street seeking financial assistance from our church, and she offered me a rather unconvincing story and gave me many reasons to deem that her request for aid was illegitimate. And our church has a policy of not giving financial assistance to people we don't know. And so as I spent time with her, and uh, though I have the liberty to override that policy on a case-by-case basis if it's a situation of true need, I was grateful for the policy to offer her a gentle but firm no, even when I could not confirm the nature of her story and request. We are finite beings. We cannot infallibly confirm a person's identity or their intent. Schools and churches and the government are limited in providing confirmation. Thankfully, the gospel has validity and is verifiable and confirmed by the witness of Scripture. Paul writes to us to give us confidence that the gospel was not made up by man, but is the very gospel of God through the teaching of the original apostles of Christ. So first tonight, we want to consider how our confidence in the biblical gospel is confirmed first by that it is not man's gospel. It does not require the approval of men, nor is, it, nor is it dependent upon man's zeal. In verse 10, Paul denies to his critics that he has been seeking the approval of men. Children are born into this world naturally desiring their parents' approval. Now, there are many things in this life that we need approval for from legitimate authorities, and including the privilege of driving an automobile, which my oldest son will be seeking in about a year's time. But there are matters of this life that are worthwhile in seeking approval. But on things that are eternal, we seek not man's approval, we seek God's. The Hebrew midwives did not need man's approval to defy Pharaoh who ordered them to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Peter and John, when they were before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, chose to obey God rather than men when it came to preaching the gospel. And so it is that Paul does not need man's approval with the gospel message. Paul goes on to ask rhetorically, am I trying to please man? So, you know, people-pleasing can be 
a dangerous business. Marketers use surveys and focus groups to find out what people want to shape their products and services to meet consumer demand. Let me assure you that the Westminster leadership is not taking that approach with our survey. Rather, we are seeking legitimate, constructive feedback to help us stay faithful to our biblical mission in our gospel ministry. And regardless of whether, if the congregation came back to us with a majority vote, asking us, demanding us to do something that conflicted with Scripture or violated some core principle of our ministry, we would not do it. Our aim is to please God, not people. Anyone who desires to turn away from being a people-pleaser to being a God-pleaser, must learn that in order to serve people, you must serve God first. Jesus states it vividly when he says in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Even more bluntly in Luke 14, the Lord says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Those who would believe the gospel and follow Jesus Christ may forfeit the approval of people. You may find that people are not so pleased with your commitment to worship the Lord on Sunday. Do you tithe your increase to the church when you say no to certain worldly employments and recreations? When you resist the temptation to join the crowd at school in practices that are displeasing to God? Man's approval turns to dust, but God's approval endures forever. In verses 11 through 14, Paul contrasts his zeal for God with his former zeal in the flesh. His testimony that the gospel is not from man, but through a revelation from Jesus Christ becomes all the more convincing when we consider the radical change in Paul's life. He reminds his audience of his former life in Judaism, how he had persecuted the church with murderous intent. In Acts 8, verse 3, Luke records how Paul went from house to house to drag the Christians off to the courts and prisons. Paul stood and approved while others picked up stones to make Stephen the first martyr. Paul thought he had been doing God a favor. And then in verse 14, Paul recounts how he was advancing in Judaism, zealous for the traditions of his fathers. You see, Paul was fanatically committed to a false religion, opposing the very work of God and hostile to the people of God. The transformation of Paul's life, of becoming a fanatic for Jesus Christ, testifies not only to the gospel's power, but also the authentic message. This is not the gospel of man, but the very gospel of God. People can be fanatically committed to their religions. Young Mormons spend two years 
as missionaries. Jehovah's Witnesses go house to house with zeal that shames many Christians. Their zeal is commendable, but not their message. Their message can sound similar to the biblical gospel. But in the end, these advocates are seeking the approval of the traditions of their founders who rejected the biblical gospel in favor of a man-centered salvation by works. These religions and all like them deny Jesus as the eternal Son of God and only Savior of sinners. The church has witnessed man's gospel in its many various forms for over 2,000 years. In the early church, the first-generation believers were tempted to appease pious Jews who believed that the Gentiles must become Jewish first, that the blood of Jesus was not sufficient for their salvation without obeying the laws of Moses through circumcision and dietary restrictions and so forth. In Martin Luther's day, approval, seeking approval from man's gospel, meant submitting to a Eucharist that was a re-sacrifice of Christ, trusting in the sacraments for salvation rather than faith in Jesus Christ. In our present day, man's gospel may be preaching heaven while ignoring hell. Promising God's abundant life while overlooking the Christian call to suffering. A message of salvation by grace through faith, but a Christian life by works. The gospel today is further compromised by a weakening commitment to the historic Adam, whose fall brought sin upon the entire human race. Various man-centered gospels can distract and dilute the true gospel with a preoccupation with end-times theology or an obsession with political issues that ultimately make man and government the Savior. We know that the gospel was not invented by Paul or by any man because it is nothing like what people have dreamt up for thousands of years to cure all the world's ills. You see, we think technology will save us from our mortality, our diseases, and natural disasters. We think that more government, more education will fix things. Politicians propose another ceasefire for Israel and Palestinians to talk and work through their differences. The problem with today's problem-solving, is that it does not go deep and dirty enough to diagnose the the true human dilemma. Man's gospel is a quick fix, a shortcut, a naive utopian dream. God's gospel goes deep with an accurate diagnosis providing a true and eternal cure. Who would have dreamt this? What creative author of old could possibly have fashioned the gospel story of God's one and only Son, born incarnate into this world, to live a perfect life of waiting 30 years before going public, of having a mere three years 
a public ministry of teaching and healing, investing himself in only but a few dozen followers, and ultimately offering himself as a sacrifice for all of God's people on a Roman cross. And three days later, rising again, declaring triumph over sin and death. This is not man's gospel. Our confidence in the biblical gospel is strengthened by the knowledge that it is not only not man's gospel, but it is the very gospel of God. And this gospel comes to us by election, revelation, and commission. I sometimes wonder, why is it that Jesus waited until after his three-year ministry and his resurrection to reveal himself to the Apostle Paul? Well, I'm sure the Lord has his own reasons for not including Paul among the original twelve. Paul was intelligent and he was zealous, but God did not call him for these reasons. Rather, in verse 15, Paul says that he had been called and set apart from before the day he was born. He was called by grace. You know, human election, by which we vote for our representatives, is a, an election by merit, or at least that's the design in our modern republic. God's election is by grace, not by merit. Each of us are called into a saving relationship with the living God, not on the basis of our deeds, our track records, or the prospect of our usefulness for kingdom work. God's gospel also comes by way of revelation. Paul was not some inspiring author and speaker who won over the ancient world by his advocation of a new religious fad. It was God's pleasure to reveal his son to Paul, literally in Paul, to plant the gospel of grace in his very heart and soul. Thirdly, the gospel is a matter of commission. Paul was not taught or sent or commissioned by any man, but rather received the gospel through revelation from Jesus Christ, that he might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's life testifies to the authenticity of the gospel message. The call of the gospel in his life overcame his pride of works righteousness, his prejudice of disdain upon the unclean Gentile sinners. The gospel turned this self-righteous, zealous man into the most bold and compassionate soul winner of the ancient world, compelling people to turn away from the coming wrath to repent and find salvation alone in Jesus Christ. The life of Paul is a confirmation of the true gospel, a life changed by God's grace. And in fact, this is the third major confirmation. The confirmation of the gospel demonstrated by a changed life. And so I challenge you tonight to evaluate yourself before God. Can you say that that the gospel has taken hold of you? Do you see the change in your life? Do you see God working, bringing about transformation? 
very few of us will be as zealous or effective as the Apostle Paul. And yet, the true, genuine gospel brings forth a confirmation of a life of humility and repentance. I believe that the hardest work of the Christian is to believe the gospel. The hardest work of the Christian is to believe the gospel, to appropriate God's grace by faith and a life of repentance. But I also believe, and this text confirms it, that, that you can't just confirm the gospel in your life by yourself. You need community. We need other witnesses to confirm the gospel to us and in us. And so our last point is that our confidence in the gospel is assured as we recognize it for the apostolic gospel. You see, Paul received this gospel not from any man, but through a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Paul, in this writing, he is vindicating his apostleship and his call to preach the gospel, declaring an independent message from any man. And by, to give his evidence, he recounts how he w- removed himself to Arabia for three years. Most scholars believe that Paul spent these three years in prayer and study and meditation, trying to understand how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Others suggest that these were a three-year make-up period for missing the discipleship with the other 12 apostles. Paul did not seek an immediate confirmation from the other apostles. He was not dependent upon their preaching of the gospel. And though he did later go up to Jerusalem, Paul in this passage seems to be downplaying its significance before his critics. Paul visited Jerusalem only after three years, stayed only 15 days, and saw only two of the apostles, Peter and James. Author John John Stott writes that the fanaticism of his pre-version career, the divine initiative in his conversion, and his almost total isolation from the Jerusalem church leaders afterwards together combined to demonstrate that his message was not from man, but from God. See, Paul needed no more confirmation of his gospel from Peter than Jesus needed John to baptize him. And yet, Paul did go and meet with the apostles to confirm their partnership in the gospel, to strengthen and establish the peace and the unity of the church, because the message was heartwarming to them, no no doubt, that this, their former adversary, was now their ally. And Paul, to convince them, to offer true convincing proof that they were on the same team, was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord throughout Jerusalem for the better part of two weeks. The apostolic tradition preserves and provides the measuring rod for gospel integrity. The original apostles, the twelve disciples, and Paul the apostle himself, established the core who preserved the gospel message. You see, Jesus was one man who is the living gospel, who brings the good news of God our Father. But he entrusted that message to the apostolic company, to this small band, this community of men, men who gave up their lives 
to protect and to pass on this eternal treasure. In his book, Built to Last, author and researcher Jim Collins studies many of the great American and Japanese businesses of the last century. And these are businesses that have spanned for generations and and, uh, have a right expectation to last several more generations. Companies like Hewitt-Packard and General Electric, Merck, Sony, Walt Disney, IBM, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, and others. And in his research, he identifies several common, commonly shared by these companies, but unique characteristics. Each of these companies set high goals, take great risks, have cultures of discipline, hire only the best, develop their own leaders, and think and plan for long term. Each of these corporations hold to deep and clearly communicated core principles, whether it's innovation or technology development, solving problems, treating people with dignity, a commitment to customer service, improving people's lives and livelihood. The reason these companies exist stay the same. Generation after generation, their methods change, their procedures are modified, technology comes and goes, and yet their core principles do not change. Likewise, the church. Though she modifies and adapts her approach and her methods, we have a gospel that does not change. Rather, the gospel changes us. So how, in review, do we confirm the gospel? Well, first, it is not man's gospel. It is God's gospel. The gospel was not invented by the imagination of men, but rather the eternal will of God. It was not something dreamed up by clever persons, but comes from the very wisdom of God. Secondly, this gospel is not a private, merely private, personal matter. It is a public matter. It is not just one man's personal experience of God. Rather, it is apostolic. It is the collective experience of those who encountered Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, who committed and laid down their lives to pass on this precious truth to guarantee us an eternal inheritance with the living God. And thirdly, we confirm, we, we find confirmation of the gospel with lives changed by Christ in a world changed by the gospel of God's grace. You see, before he knew the gospel, Saul of Tarsus was a driven man obsessed with the traditions of his fathers, self-righteous and zealously seeking to to destroy the work of God and God's people. After he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul was transformed into the most passionate preacher of the gospel the world has ever known. Before the gospel entered the world, the world was in darkness. Now the world has the light and truth of God. Before Jesus, the world was in ignorance. Now we have the very wisdom of God. 
You and I were once alienated from God. We are now reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You and I who were once enslaved to the deceitfulness of sin, those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ are set free from their bondage and slavery to sin. In his biography, Amazing Grace, covering the life of William Wilberforce, Eric Metaxas describes that the accomplishments of William Wilberforce, not only in leading the effort to end the slave trade in the British Empire and to eventually abolish slavery across the empire, as great as that feat was, what was more amazing is how he and his fellow leaders changed the way an entire society thought about slavery and human dignity. You see, before, up till this time, slavery was considered a good thing. It was intertwined in uh, human civilization. It was considered economically necessary, even morally defensible. Wilberforce had been worldly and employed in the ways of the world and gambling as a, a young member of the House of Parliament until he began to wrestle with the teachings of the New Testament that he had heard in his youth. And when he was converted, he changed, realizing that he could not go back, realizing that he could only go forward, and slowly but surely he began to see the hideous evil of what slavery truly was. The treating of human persons made in God's image as mere animals, as mere property to be traded on open markets. And this was a, a, an abomination he could no longer ignore. And persuaded by those in his circle of influence to remain in Parliament, he began to use his extraordinary influence, his wit and oratory skill to begin changing a government culture, begin changing a society's view on what is righteous, just, and true. And what is most amazing about the work of Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and those who worked with him for abolition is that the world would never be the same again. Yes, slavery still exists in this world, but it is almost universally condemned by every human society. And there are laws opposing it, and there are means to enforce uh, it's as an evil. Their efforts not only brought a transformation to slavery, but also ushered in a whole modern era of social reform, of societies and groups and organizations advocating for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the prisoner, and to offer them hope of lives changed by Christ. The Apostle Paul, like William Wilberforce, needed conversion, needed a new way of seeing the world. And the only thing that could bring forth this transformation was not man's gospel, but the true gospel of God. This was not one man's crusade, yet a determined community to preserve the core and impact the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ changed lives 
change lives. The testimony of our lives changed by Christ is what influences others to see that there is real hope. There is real meaning. There is something to be said in this thing we call the gospel. And it's by your life. It's by your witness. It's by your testimony. It's by your hope. It's by your humility. It's by your repentance. It's by your your life transformed by the gospel of God's grace that the world is being changed as more and more people come to know Christ as the only Savior of sinners. Once tasted, once you experience the gospel, your life is never the same. The world is never the same again. So friends, tonight, let us part with confidence that we rest on a sure hope in the gospel of God, that gospel that has changed you, that gospel that is changing the world for the glory of Christ. Let his name be praised forever and ever. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are so grateful for the power and the grace and the majesty of your gospel revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful for the Apostle Paul, the other disciples, whose lives were transformed, whose message has gone forth these millennia, that we are inheritors, that we have received this glorious message, that we have been entrusted with this precious truth. And I pray that we would be good stewards of that grace to know and cherish and relish the gospel of grace. And may it manifest in our lives with great hope and great joy, with tremendous transformation. Make us your witnesses to bless others, to point others to the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.